0: As we were um, singing that verse, uh, "Blessed be Your name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering, blessed be Your name," I couldn't help but think again of Ruth and of the fact that on the in the pain and on the road marked with suffering, God's name is blessed will be blessed, must be blessed. And today in Ruth chapter 4, we see that indeed God's name is going to be blessed. Over the past several weeks, we have been studying the book of Ruth, and today we enter into the fourth and final chapter of this story. We're dividing it into two sections. So this morning we'll look at Ruth 4, 1 to 12, and next week Pastor Stephen will wrap up this sermon series um, for us. Last week we were in Ruth chapter 3 in the scene on the threshing floor, and we learned that Ruth very vulnerably comes before Boaz and asks him, not in these words, but asks him, reminds him that she is yours Do what is right with me. Do what is right by me. And in Ruth chapter 4, we'll find out, is Ruth going to do right, or is Boaz going to do right by Ruth? Will he restore, redeem her, and by extension, Naomi? Will Boaz follow through? So as we turn to God's word this morning, let's pray. God, may your word be our rule, may your spirit be our teacher, and may the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, be our utmost concern. Bless the reading and the hearing of the word, God, that you might indeed be blessed in both the land of blessing and in lands of suffering. This we pray in your name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord, friends, from Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Mahlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Mahlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses... Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathath and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> this sort of strange story begins at the city gate, at the town gate of Bethlehem. The town gate, the city gate at this time, was a place of business. It was a place of legal transaction, of theological conversation. It's a very busy hubbub with lots of... Of activity and it's at the city gate that Boaz pursues a conversation with the elders of the town regarding the property of Elimelech through Naomi elders here doesn't necessarily mean elderly though they may have been elderly, but rather these are people in the community who are well-known. These are people in the community who have good reputation and whose wisdom is sought in matters like this when we're not sure exactly where family property lines should be drawn or any other business that might come up. So at the city gate with these 10 elders, it just so happens that the closer guardian redeemer... To Naomi and Ruth comes by. Now, if you don't remember from last week, this kinsman redeemer, this guardian redeemer, is the one who actually has the closer rights to redeeming the property and the closer rights to acquiring Ruth. Boaz is a little bit further removed, but it just so happens that he is walking by. And interestingly, his name in Hebrew, when Boaz says, Come here, my friend. His name is Pelony Almany. Pelony Almany, which means so-and-so. Mr. So-and-so. Mr. Such-and-such, right? A man with no name. Mr. So-and-so. That gives us a hint that maybe his name isn't going to continue. Mr. So and so. But Mr. So and so is the guardian redeemer, the closer guardian redeemer to Naomi and Ruth. Remember with me that the guardian redeemer in this culture is the one who is obligated to protect the family, to come alongside the family when there is a serious difficulty or when there is no head of house. And that's the case for Naomi and Ruth. There are no husbands and there are no sons to lead the household. In this particular case, a kinsman redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, is needed to help with the buying back of property, but kinsman redeemers also helped with redeeming slaves, and in some instances, avenging murder. So they had a big job, and we might understand why Mr. So-and-so isn't too keen about fulfilling his duties in just a moment. So, the stage is set at the city gate with these 12 men Boaz, the 10 elders, Mr. So and so, and whoever else is around at the city gate at that time. And they begin a conversation about what to do with this land that belongs to Elimelech and with Ruth, the dead man's widow. Now, I think it's fair to say that we understand what happens in this story. We understand where the story goes, that Boaz acquires the property, that he also acquires Ruth the Moabite, that they get married, that they have a son, which we'll reflect on more next week, and that ultimately the family is restored through this conversation that happens between these 12 men. But this is a very weird story. We know what happens, but the process is really strange. When Eric and I bought a house, we did not receive the sandals of the previous homeowner. That did not happen. The homeowner left many interesting gifts in the home when we moved in, but sandals were not among the gifts. We understand that this property is being transferred, but we don't really understand the process. We understand that Boaz and Ruth are married, but we don't really understand the process. And I think as we take a little bit of a closer look of why Boaz is saying the things that he's saying and doing the things that he's doing, that there is an invitation for us as faithful followers of God today. So let's take a little bit of a closer look. There's two things happening in this passage. Um, First is the redemption of property, and second is what's called a leave-right marriage. A leave-right marriage. What's interesting, especially when we get to the leave-right marriage, is that there's a standard that's set in the Bible— This is what you do when property needs to be exchanged. This is what you do when you have a widow who doesn't have a son. There's a standard that's set in Scripture. But Ruth chapter 4 doesn't exactly match that standard. Even though scripture articulates for us, here's what should happen when there's property that needs to be redeemed, and here's what should happen when a dead man's widow has no son, this story doesn't quite fit those parameters. And there is where I think an invitation exists for us. There seems to be some type of exception that Boaz is making. And we know as followers of God that sometimes a standard is set But sometimes we have to take things case by case. Sometimes exceptions are made. To put it another way, because I work with teenagers, I couldn't help but think about growing up I had a curfew. My curfew was midnight, so maybe my curfew is way better or way worse than your curfew, but mine was midnight. And that was the standard that was set by my parents. Audrey Rink, you must be home by the stroke of midnight on Friday or Saturday, and if not, you will be in trouble. That was the standard that was set by my parents. But like most teenagers, did I always get home at midnight? No, I did not always get home at midnight. And sometimes, I will admit, it was because I wasn't being super responsible. I wasn't keeping track of the time. I was having fun with my friends. I wasn't thinking about how, oh, I can't leave at 11.45 because the drive is actually 30 minutes long. I wasn't always being responsible. So sometimes I did miss my curfew. I wasn't as into shenanigans as you were, um, but sometimes I did, uh, I did miss my curfew. There were also times, though, that I did miss my curfew, um, but I called my parents, and I let them know that I wasn't going to be home on time. I said, I'm so sorry. I didn't look at the clock. I'm not going to be home. Or I'm so sorry. I don't know where I am. I'm lost, which if you know me, (laughs) it happens quite a bit. Um, And I'm not sure how to get home. So I'm going to be late for my curfew. The standard was set by my parents. You must be home at this time. If not, you'll be in trouble. But my parents, in their wisdom, didn't always discipline me when I was late for my curfew. When I was not being responsible... There was a punishment. But when I was doing my best to keep them into the loop and owning up to the fact that I wasn't meet, meeting that standard, they didn't always punish me, which was really fun for my siblings to pay attention to. I didn't always get in trouble for missing my curfew because sometimes exceptions are made. Sometimes the situation is different than the standard that is set. And that's what we encounter here in Ruth chapter 4. The first standard that is set is for property redemption. Leviticus 25 tells us this, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. When a fellow Israelite is in a bad situation, in this case, Naomi, the nearest relative is to come and to redeem what they have sold. In Ruth 4, 2-4, this is the first conversation that these 12 men are having together. And already we notice that it's not consistent. Because the nearest relative did not initiate the conversation. Mr. So-and-so was off to such-and-such. This, that, and the other thing. He does not initiate the conversation. We also notice, too, that Naomi is not the one who gets to sell her property, right? She is the person, because of her situation, who doesn't get to pursue that conversation. So already the stage is set for us to wonder, this situation, it doesn't fit the standard. Now, Boaz knows that. And he calls Mr. So-and-so to account, reminding him that it is his job to redeem the property. And yes, Mr. So-and-so initially says that he will redeem the property. But this situation does not match the standard set for us in Leviticus 25. Why is Boaz calling this meeting? Where was Mr. So-and-so when this When Naomi and Ruth came into town. And finally, in verses 5 through 6, Boaz makes a very interesting connection from his situation to another standard. And he makes the connection when he says these words in verse 5. On the day you, Mr. So-and-so, by the land from Naomi you also require Ruth the Moabite in order to maintain the name of the dead in order to maintain the name of the dead here Boaz is directly quoting Deuteronomy 25 now there's a lot of really interesting research that's gone into this passage Um, And if you're interested to do some more reading on leave right marriages from Deuteronomy, uh, let me know. I'm happy to send you some really interesting articles. But for our purpose this morning, um, let's look at together how Deuteronomy 25 just does not fit what's happening in Ruth 4. In Deuteronomy 25, there are two brothers and one brother dies, Right? The dead brother um, has no sons, but he does leave a widow behind. So it's the job of the living brother to marry the widow, to have a son with her, and that son will carry on the name of the dead brother. There are two brothers. One man marries his sister-in-law. They have a son. That son carries on the name of the dead brother. Well, I've got some questions about that. Um, what if there are more than two brothers? Uh, what if he doesn't want to marry his sister-in-law? I mean, I love my brother-in-law, but no. What if she doesn't want to marry her brother-in-law? What if they have a daughter, but not a son? What if she already has a daughter? but just not a son. Then do they have to enter into this union together? In Deuteronomy 25, uh, he does say no. He feels a little bit strange about the situation, and she, the widow, gets to go to the city gate and call him the house of the unsandaled, which I think is negative, though we wouldn't really insult each other with that today, right? The house of the unsandaled. That is called a leave marriage, that's what that situation is called. And it makes sense that this type of relationship would exist within a culture where marrying outside of the tribe is not acceptable. Because you're going to run into a situation where somebody dies, but what's, what is the woman to do and how can the line continue? There needs to be some type of way for the family to continue. Um, and though this leave right marriage is outlined for us in Deuteronomy 25, it really doesn't Happen in scripture. It's not recorded very much in scripture. There's one other instance where it does occur outside of uh, Ruth chapter 4, but notice with me in Ruth 4 Are there two brothers? No Mahlon is the man who dies and leaves a widow, but Boaz is not Mahlon's brother Mr. So-and-so isn't Mahlon's brother So why is it that they're entering into this relationship or that that's brought up by Boaz? Boaz makes the connection when he says in the name, in order to maintain the name of the dead brother, because Boaz is saying, I will come together with Ruth and our son will maintain the name of Mahlon. But want to know what doesn't happen in Ruth chapter four? The son Obed is not the son of Mahlon and Ruth; he is the son of Boaz and Ruth. What? Why is that? That Boaz, Boaz proposes a levirate marriage in this situation, which does not match the standard. What is happening in this passage? A lot of scholars have spent a lot of time doing a lot of thinking about. This text. But here's what I wonder about it. What do we do as people of faith when the situation doesn't match the standard? What do we do when our circumstances feel unaddressed by Scripture? How do we process that as people of faith? What does Boaz have to teach us about that? Again, in my work with teenagers, one of the things we talk about a lot is dating. What does Scripture have to say about dating? Nothing. Scripture has a lot to say about relationships. A lot. Scripture has so much to say about love. Scripture has so much to offer about marriage. But there is no Dating 101 chapter In Scripture, and if there was, I would have found it by this point. What do we do when our situation feels unaddressed by Scripture? I think in this passage, there are three things that we can take away um, from Boaz and from Naomi when our situation doesn't match the standard that's presented uh, in Scripture or in our upbringing. These three things are not things that are new. But I invite you at this time to just take a spiritual temperature check and to notice within yourself, am I doing these things? Am I aligning myself with these values? And if not, what might God be inviting me to today? The first thing that I notice that Boaz does in this passage, as Naomi and Ruth do too, is discern in community what should be done. Boaz, Mr. So-and-so, and the ten elders discern at the city gate what should be done. Before that, Boaz and Ruth on the threshing floor discern what might be done. Before that, Ruth and Naomi have a conversation about what should be done about their situation. They work together to discern the next faithful action step that God is calling them to because their situation doesn't meet these standards, but they still feel called to loyalty and to faithfulness. So they discern as a community what faithfully moving forward would look like. Scripture has so much wisdom to offer us about discerning in community, but the passage that comes to me whenever I remember how important that work is, is Colossians 3. And again, this may be because it's a passage we've talked about um, several times in youth group. Colossians 3 says this, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach ...and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. This is one passage in which the community discerns together, teaches together, admonishes together what it will look like to do whatever they can in word or in deed to honor God. Friends, this is not new, but I wonder... Do you have a community in which you are discerning? Do you have a space in which you can faithfully wonder with family or with friends or with members of North Holland how God might be calling you to act? We do this in ministry team meetings, we do this at consistory, we do this in life groups, but do you do this? Do you discern within community? The second thing that I notice, which is not new but important, is that Boaz, in his conversation and in his actions, chooses to elevate the vulnerable. Boaz elevates the vulnerable. Boaz doesn't directly benefit from this conversation um, he does want to marry Ruth. You know, he's, he's kind of into her, so he's, I think, a little bit excited about that part of the deal. Um, but he has to purchase property, okay? So it's a financial loss for him initially. Um, he has more people to care for. So again, he's taking on a burden of caring for Ruth and Naomi, but he is choosing to invest In the vulnerable in his midst, to notice the needs of those around him and to elevate not his needs, not his wants, but those of the vulnerable among him. This is not a new calling for followers of God. We must elevate the vulnerable, elevate the needs of those around us who are poor, those who are suffering, the widow and the orphan. One of the many passages in scripture that talks about elevating the needs of the vulnerable comes from Isaiah 1. Isaiah 117 says this, learn to do right seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Boaz goes to the city gate to plead the case of the widow. Even though there is this initial loss for him, he elevates the needs of the vulnerable in his community. I wonder, how are you elevating the needs of the vulnerable in your context. I think North Holland has a great history of partnering with vulnerable communities. That's really beautiful. And I wonder for you too, as an individual, as a couple, as a family, how are you partnering with and elevating the needs of those who are vulnerable? There's one final thing that I, I notice that Boaz does, even though this situation doesn't really fit the standard and it's perhaps the most obvious thing, Um, it's just that he does something. He acts. Boaz is not morally or legally obligated to do anything in this situation because he is not Mr. So-and-so. He is not Mr. Such-and-such. It is not his job. No one would expect him to do anything here. He's got a great life. He's a landowner. He's got people working for him. He's clearly a respected member of the community because he can call 10 elders together whenever he wants to to discuss something. His life is going well for him. But he still chooses to rise up and to put himself at more risk for the needs of those around him. It makes me wonder for myself and for us, even if it doesn't have to be me, what if I rise up anyway? What if I act anyway? Reminds me of Galatians 6. Galatians 6, uh, 9 and 10 says this. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good. When? As we have opportunity. As we have opportunity. Do good. Even though it is not his place, Boaz rises up. He does something. He acts. And I wonder if God might use you to answer someone else's prayer. I wonder if God might use you to answer your own prayer. But the invitation is just to rise up, to act. Boaz is the redeemer in this story. And of course, Jesus is our redeemer. In his life, we see that Jesus rises up. Jesus takes on the cross, though it was not his moral bearing. It was ours. Jesus chooses to elevate the vulnerable, us. Because when we were sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus constantly, consistently discerns the law of God and community. Discerns with disciples, discerns with people in the synagogue, what might the next faithful step toward God look like. As we leave this place this morning and head into our week, I would encourage you to hold on to one of those things. Discernment in community, elevating the vulnerable, or having the courage to rise up and ask yourself, how might I faithfully follow God in one of those three ways this week? And if you're not sure, do some discernment in community. Friends, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may you be blessed in this word. Amen.